the WHO is being abandoned, the Supreme Court is being sensible, and Dismantle America is being screamed. I'm Josiah Everton, and this is The Glorious Rescue. Welcome back to yet another episode of The Glorious Rescue. We have lots to cover, lots of material as usual, many, many headlines and stories to jump into before heading into our end of show segment. Before we jump into it, just one little quick call to action, if I could, and that is if you are listening right now, if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and just leave us a five-star review, it does help. It helps to kind of bring us up on those charts to bring a little bit more awareness to the show. So obviously, if you're listening, that is probably a good indicator that you are a little bit of a believer in the show. And if you are a believer, I would ask that you just quickly hop on over to iTunes and leave us that five-star review. Also, if you're listening on Spotify or even on iTunes, you can hit that subscribe button, the follow button, just to be updated again so you don't have to continue to remember to tune in on Tuesdays and Fridays. It'll be automatically added into your queue. And then, obviously, the pleasure and the honor of sharing this episode. If you do so, make sure to tag The Glorious Rescue so we can repost it. Thank you guys, all of you, for all of the support. Let's jump right into our first story, which will be the WHO. President Trump has announced United States removal from the WHO, so we're going to unpack a little bit of what the WHO is, how it has acted with the coronavirus, and whether or not this was a good decision or if it really even matters. The WHO, I want to start off with this preface and with this premise, and I will go ahead and prove this premise to you really briefly and then explain to you how or why this premise has influenced Donald Trump's decision. So the first claim, the premise I want to start off with is that the WHO is a puppet of the Chinese government. I would even categorize them as a fraud and they failed, not just failed miserably in regards to the coronavirus, but it's almost so miserable that it makes you question the motives of the WHO being a puppet of the Chinese government. Whether they are there as the World Health Organization or they're there just to provide and fill the needs of the Chinese government. Obviously, Joe Biden's response to Donald Trump's removal was that when he is president, the first thing he will do, the very first thing of all the priorities he will ever do as president will be to reinstate us back into the WHO. I I saw a joke that was, um, okay, Joe Biden, I'd like to see you remember that when you become president because, well, Sleepy Joe might have a problem remembering that, but also Pelosi's response, as expected, was extremely belligerent against this action from Donald Trump. And it could even be a good action on behalf of Donald Trump, no matter what, and Pelosi and the rest of the left would absolutely go crazy over it. But I want to briefly explain to you and unpack an article specifically that I read from The Atlantic outlining how the WHO has acted in regards to the coronavirus to kind of back up Trump's decision. This article wasn't published after Trump made the decision. It was published back in April. And I just want to read some excerpts, we'll unpack it, and explain to you how it affects our decision and our opinion of the WHO. First of all, there was a research scientist who found out that the statements made by the World Health Organization at the beginning of this coronavirus situation back in January even, that the statements made by the WHO, this international body advising the world on handling health crises, often echoed China's messages. That's a direct quote from... The Atlantic. When I say often echoed China's messages, I mean basically whatever the Chinese government would put out regarding the coronavirus, the WHO would back up and would promulgate. Here's the most notorious example that this article points out is that there was a tweet from the WHO on January 14th. 
that found that Chinese authorities have found no clear evidence of human to human transmission. And this, I think, is probably one of the biggest failures on behalf of the WHO because they said that the Chinese government and authorities have found no evidence of human to human transmission. The Chinese government that same day, specifically the Wuhan Health Commission's public bulletin, declared, We have found no proof for human to human transmission. But even in January, this article states, when Chinese authorities were downplaying the extent of the virus, doctors at the epicenter of the outbreak in Wuhan reportedly observed human-to-human transmission. So beginning of January, you have Chinese scientists and health authorities and doctors in Wuhan stating that they're observing human-to-human transmission. At the same time, now you have the Wuhan Health Commission's public bulletin saying, we found no proof for it, and the WHO backing that. The WHO just completely parroting really what the Chinese government was promulgating. So you have that. And then also on January 20th is when a Chinese official officially confirmed publicly that human to human transmission was possible. I want you to notice that it was not for another week for the WHO to declare the spread of the virus a global health emergency. Not only that, but during that time, even after that, you have the WHO's director general visiting China, praising China quote-unquote, setting a new standard for outbreak response, just singing the Chinese government's praises for handling the coronavirus when they knew and seems like willfully let out this virus, knowing full well human-to-human transmission was possible, lying about it, and then not restricting travel for a serious amount of time after that. It is important to note that those few weeks, you would say, oh, it's just a few weeks, was the time of Chinese New Year, where millions and millions of people are traveling in and out of China, in and out of even Wuhan specifically, During this time that not only the Chinese government, but the WHO sat on their hands, not listening to the people who are actually on the field, but just simply parroting whatever the government was, the Chinese government was stating. So no, there was no valiant approach on behalf of the Chinese government in regards to handling the coronavirus. They lied about it, and there seems to be good evidence that it was willful. So first, the WHO, then also the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court had many decisions coming down the last week or two, a couple regarding Trump's tax documents and other financial documents, and then also in regards to religious liberty, some good news there. The first one in regards to Trump tax records, according to an article posted by Fox News, there was a subpoena issued by House Democrats for Trump to basically hand over a lot of his financial documents. Basically what the court ruled is that the House, or really the legislative branch, doesn't necessarily have the right to do so and kicked it down into a lower court. What was stated uh, in the majority opinion, it was voted this decision seven to two. It stated indeed from President Washington until now, we have never considered a dispute over a congressional subpoena for the president's record. This was new for them. This was a new court case and there really wasn't a lot of precedent regarding it. It says the president is neither, this is the majority opinion, The president is neither absolutely immune from state criminal subpoenas seeking his private papers nor entitled to a heightened standard of need. And this is something I would agree with. The idea of rule of law and that everyone is under the rule of law. It's not rule of king, but in America, we have the rule of law. And everyone is under that same rule of law that the president is not absolutely immune from state criminal subpoenas seeking his private papers, nor is he even entitled to a heightened standard of need. And so, but I I think that the court recognized that a lot of it was political and that is why they basically issued the opinion and ruled in favor of the legislative branch not being able to subpoena a president over financial records. 
they state in the opinion that when Congress seeks information needed for an in, for an intelligent legislative action, it unquestionably remains the duty of all citizens to cooperate, referring to the president. But subpoenas from Congress to the president implicate special concerns regarding the separation of powers. The courts below did not take adequate account of those concerns. And that's really the crux of the issue. The idea of separation of powers that I do believe that the court correctly cited on, that we are somewhat muddling the separation of powers that we discussed a lot about with Montesquieu and the idea of separation of powers within different branches of government. And this kind of muddles those lines. And so the Supreme Court properly does that and kicks it down into a lower court to decide. And I believe there was a lot of tweets on behalf of Trump and also a lot of anger on behalf of the right stating that it's just the same old witch hunt. Whether or not there are political motives, I'm not even going to comment on. It doesn't really matter. But the idea of that it should still be settled in court, the idea of financial records from the president being released, that's okay. It's okay for a president to be subpoenaed for information that need to be called into light for review. It just shouldn't be done by House Democrats or really by the legislative branch. So I think the court made a good decision here. They also made an amazing decision in regards to religious liberty and under the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. And to keep it age appropriate, the idea is under Obamacare as a health care policy, there are certain provisions to which a religious organization might object. And so the Supreme Court had cases in regards to religious organizations, specifically the Sisters of Mercy, I believe it was. And the Supreme Court ruled in favor again in a 7-2 decision on behalf of religious liberty and on behalf, I would really say, of common sense. In the majority opinion, it was stated that a woman who does not have the benefit of this type of provision and coverage under her employer's plan is not the victim of a burden imposed by the rule or her employer. She is simply not the beneficiary of something that federal law does not provide. Federal law does not provide this. She is in the same position as a woman who does not work outside the home or a woman whose health insurance is provided by a grandfather plan that does not pay for these provisions or a woman who works for a small business that may not provide any health insurance at all. And that is just basically the common sense side. That not only a religious organization, but any organization, if it does not give you these types of provisions, they're not necessarily denying you a certain benefit. You are not the victim of a burden. You're just simply not the beneficiary of something. And then going a step further, you have Alito and Gorsuch who came together for a concurring opinion, stating, taking it a step further, really. According to an article at Fox News, it stated that these two justices argued that, quote, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 compelled the government to issue the religious and moral objection exception. The Supreme Court also ruled in favor of religious organizations in an employment discrimination case Wednesday. And last week, it came down with a ruling that states could not ban religious schools from receiving money from state-funded scholarship programs that are available to non-religious private schools. So a lot of court cases in ruling in favor of religious liberty that religious organizations cannot be discriminated against for their religious tenets. Good things coming from the Supreme Court in the last little bit. Good turnaround from a lot of the previous cases coming out. I'm just going to briefly touch on and just really hit the main headlines for three or four more stories. And that is, first of all, Hong Kong. We talked about China overreaching into Hong Kong and the absolute horrible totalitarian government that China has and how it's being pushed upon the people of Hong Kong. Hong Kong schools, according to an article at CNN, are told to remove books that violate new law as police powers extended. So the police powers now have been extended under this national security law from China. The police force broadened, the police powers extended into Hong Kong, and they are now imposing the removal of books that violate this new law. More censorship, 
and less freedom for the people of Hong Kong. It's time to free Hong Kong, and it's time to end the horrible regime of the Chinese Communist Party. A little bit more also with the development of Kanye. Kanye for president. He had a recent interview, which I thought was very interesting. But a lot of the headlines coming out of it were that Kanye is now denouncing Trump, denouncing Republicanism or the Republican Party. And the headlines couldn't be more far from the truth. Really, he outlined his tenets as a candidate. He talked about being pro-life because he follows the word of, of, of the Bible. He said that Trump is the closest president we've had in years to allowing God to still be part of the conversation. He called for prayer to be put back in schools, a more God-centered culture, like a lot of really good Christian things. And then he also did not denounce Trump whatsoever. He called out really a lot of the left, specifically Joe Biden saying that you're not black if you don't vote for him, that type of thing. And he also, to the headline stating that he denounced Trump, he said that Joe Biden isn't special. He really denounced the left. And then he said, if his running helped Donald Trump be a president again, it wouldn't be a bad thing. So, yay, we will look forward to more of that in the coming future. And just a little bit of a caveat, obviously not endorsing Kanye for president, but I just wanted to point out that the headlines there were not portrayal of mainstream media, but more like activist media, just pushing headlines that supported their own agenda. And he actually had a good pro-Christian and anti-left message to push, which I do, like I said, and like I will continue to say, will I do believe will help Trump in this 2020 election. And then just a couple brief things in regards to the intro stating denouncing America as being shouted, or dismantle America rather, Ilhan Omar, the congresswoman, to say the very least, the very left-leaning congresswoman, Ilhan Omar, when asked about policy and culture upcoming in the American future, she stated, quote, we cannot stop at the criminal justice system. And then she said, basically, we must, quote, dismantle the whole system. We have talked about this many, many times over in the show. Once again, Omar here is just stating the silent here on behalf of the Democratic Party, on behalf of a, a lot of really now the mainstream left, that the issues don't stop with the policy. It's the fundamentals of the American system that must be dismantled. We must dismantle the whole system, spoken truly by the intellectual Ilhan Omar. We're going to talk actually a little bit more about those fundamentals in our end of show segment. But before I do a little bit of a quick note here, she's running for re-election. And her, according to her campaign and the numbers being put out by her campaign, she has given almost a million dollars now, around 900000 or so, to a counseling firm. A counseling firm and counseling fees as a whole. That counseling firm is owned none other than her newest and latest husband. Talk about corruption. And talk about why the mainstream now activist media is not blowing this up and talking about it. How it's a huge story of corruption. Nonetheless, we also have Tammy Duckworth who is being considered as Joe Biden's vice president pick. And we will definitely talk about her more in the upcoming future. Especially if she is picked as the vice presidential candidate. But really stating in regards to Trump's Mount Rushmore speech that all he did was reference a bunch of dead traitors. The only people that she could be even remotely referring to would be the people that Trump was referring to in his speech, which were Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Frederick Douglass, I believe the abolitionist, maybe Ulysses S. Grant, no Confederate generals, but George Washington. Yes, George Washington, the dead traitor. This could be our new vice president of the United States, referring to George Washington, the first and probably the most moral president of all times, being a dead traitor. Anyways, don't have too much time to get into that. 
we are going to, like promised, get into discussing more fundamental principles of the founding era. Well, here we go, another segment of the founding era. Today, we're going to be jumping into John Locke, John Locke's writings, his principles, and his influence on not only American government during the founding era and the colonial era, but also definitely his lasting effect on American government. We've talked about Montesquieu, Montesquieu being the most quoted author and political thinker during the late 1700s up until about 1800 by our founders. Montesquieu really laid out the structure of our government, the how. Blackstone, who I want to discuss later in at least one of these founding era segments, really discussed natural law, the rule of law being the what of government. What is the duty of government? What is government protecting? But John Locke, John Locke is the one who really discussed the why, who laid out the why of government, the fundamental principles and what its duty is to protect. I want to start off by talking about a lot of the misnomers regarding Locke. There was a lot of discussion and debate among John Locke and his theories and Edmund Burke, who is a British politician during the time of the American War for Independence. Edmund Burke, John Locke, Thomas Paine, Thomas Jefferson, all of these were very learned men, very respectable men, but they differed on some things. And from those differings comes, does come a lot of misnomers regarding John Locke. A lot of people would view Edmund Burke as the more traditional type of conservative, holding on to traditional values, caring also not only about liberty, but also strong family units and morality in culture. And a lot of people then would contrast Locke from Burke as categorizing Locke as caring more about the liberty and caring about liberty and not necessarily morality. A lot of people would argue that Locke kind of downplays morality in culture that he doesn't emphasize it, and that he doesn't lay the principles of freedom in morality, but just simply in abstract ideals of liberty. For instance, he discusses rule of law, consent by the governed and whatnot, but he lays those abstract concepts as the foundation of liberty, whereas Edmund Burke would talk about morality in culture having deeper ties to liberty. There are a lot of misnomers in regards to that. For instance, John Locke not only was a philosopher or a political thinker, but he was a leading Protestant theologian. Most people don't know that. Most people don't know that he actually wrote commentaries. He wrote a commentary on the Gospels, and he wrote a commentary on the life of Paul. So obviously those simple facts would denote that he does care about religion, that he does care about morality in a society. He also states in his writings that theism ought to be a foundation of society. Not only that, but Locke was very interested in the Christian theology, and he was an avid supporter of Christianity, like Christendom as a whole. So there's a lot of misnomers, the misnomers being that Locke belonged more to the Enlightenment and that the Enlightenment was against God. But that's really wrong, because he did believe that theism ought to be the foundation of society. So how do you rectify a lot of what people are saying or what people would say about Locke with what is actually true about him? And that would be where he concludes would be the origin of human rights. We talked a lot about human rights and the origin of human rights being expressly laid out in the law of nature and of nature's God. And he would claim that as well. He derives the principles of freedom from our nature. So we talked about that, that human rights are innately placed into us at human nature. And that that freedom, those principles of freedom, supply the opportunity and the standard as our conduct. 
that when we are given that freedom, we have a responsibility to live within that freedom, good moral lives. So if he believes that the principles of freedom are not changing by culture, but he believes that they are derived from nature, then that would mean that he would fall into the line of belief that liberty comes from the law of nature. And the law of nature is a moral law because the law of nature is unchanging, just like the moral law. The law of nature being divinely placed into morality. These are all principles to which we can agree with. Principles that our nation was founded upon. So when people like Ilhan Omar get up and say that the American system, the entire American system needs to be dismantled, I ask her the question, what about that needs to be dismantled? What about the ideas of the rule of law, not the rule of a king, the ideas of representative government, the consent of the government and protection of human rights by the government that she disagrees with? I ask her what she disagrees with, the idea of human rights being derived from human nature and that human nature being derived from a moral law and that and only that adhering to a moral law and living a good moral life gives allowance to a limited government, a limited government that stays out of their citizens' way, their citizens' right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What with that does she disagree with? I would like to hear those give a coherent argument against that because I doubt they could. We will definitely be discussing more of John Locke when we discuss Edmund Burke, and then we'll kind of contrast the two, who we think is right and how they rebuttaled, but a lot of it is misnomers because John Locke still believed in morality being a fundamental pillar for the preservation of liberty, that the two are very deeply connected, and so did Edmund Burke believe that likewise, something that I believe we should all as Americans agree with because it is fundamental to the American system. So as the world cries for tearing down the American system, I ask them the question, what better system do you lay forth? Do you lay forth a better system, more able to protect God-given human rights, human rights divinely given to us through the law of nature and of nature's God? Do you lay forth a system, a better system with more consent from the governed, a more effective rule of law, and a more abled representative government? Do you really lay out a system more dedicated to the task of preserving liberty? Or are you just outcrying to push your own leftist agenda? Or are you outcrying for more media attention to continue to aggrandize your own pockets, like you're obviously doing with your campaign? So there you have it, the discussion of John Locke, his principles, and his influence in American systems and American government. So thank you so much for continuing to listen in, continuing to enjoy my rants, or hopefully you do. Once again, if you do enjoy them, please help others enjoy them by sharing this episode, tagging the Glorious Rescue. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Josiah Evertson, and this is The Glorious Rescue.